0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It looks like what happens when a Western-style town disintegrates. The infrastructure that was there was just left to be taken over again by the jungle. You saw, out of that destruction, people being very creative. I remember being in Bougainville, 15 years ago, and someone had paved their backyard with the concrete covers of telecom pits. It was like a a paved area made from what wasn't needed anymore, which was the telephone network of Arua. So those types of things, that sort of creativity is what sustained people through those conflict years. And it's the same sort of creativity that people are applying to their future.
2: That's Shane McLeod, the ABC's former Papua New Guinea correspondent, talking about Bougainville, a province of PNG that's just begun voting in a referendum on independence. I'm Kerry Phillips, and the drive for independence can be strong these days, as we've seen in places like Catalonia and Scotland. In this rear vision, we'll find out why the Bougainvillians, around 250,000 people, might want a future independent of PNG. The story begins in the 1960s, in the dying days of Australia's colonial presence in what would soon become the independent nation-state Papua New Guinea. Bougainville, the largest island in the Solomon Islands archipelago, was part of the territory administered by Australia but it wasn't clear at the time that it should become part of PNG. Dr Alan Patience from the University of Melbourne.
0: Well, Papua New Guinea generally, of course, is a very diverse entity, and Bougainville is perhaps the most diverse part of contemporary Papua New Guinea. It's the most remote part. It's off the northeastern edge of Papua New Guinea, and it's more closely aligned with what are the current Solomon Islands, And indeed, in terms of ethnic and tribal and customary values and so on, Bougainville has much more in common with the people of the Solomons. The earliest European contact was with the French, hence the name Bougainville, but uh, subsequently the British took over the area when they took responsibility for the region in the late uh, 19th century. came into contact with Australia when Australia took over the mandated territories after World War II, and then as uh, independence approached great debates were held about whether or not bougainville would be part of the new papua new guinea and indeed that looked very tendentious for quite a while finally an agreement was hammered out and independent papua new guinea included bougainville but on terms that gave it special autonomy over its own affairs so it's been a Delicate relationship right from the word go, as far as Papua New Guinea is concerned.
3: Bougainvillians are a united group. They have a sense of a separate identity, centred particularly on a very dark skin colour, much darker than the average in the rest of Papua New Guinea.
2: Dr Anthony Regan is a constitutional lawyer at the ANU.
3: But that's probably quite a new thing, a 20th century thing because Bougainvillians have 24 distinct languages and about 50 sub-languages and dialects. And no language group is a political unit. They're broken up into lots of little identity groups, depending on ecological and other niches. During the post-war period, the beginnings of a sort of linking political and economic demands to Bougainville identity asserted against the rest of Papua New Guinea, began to emerge. Even in the early 60s, when a UN mission visited Bougainville, there was a call from some Bougainvillians for the UN to take over or for Bougainville to be part of America. They didn't feel happy being part of the Australian colonial territory. I'm not saying this was every Bougainvillian, this huge range of differences. There were some parts of Bougainville where there was high education levels and quite a bit of integration into Papua New Guinea particularly in the northern part on the east coast of Bougainville. But there was a significant element of dissatisfaction.
2: That feeling of dissatisfaction intensified with the establishment of what would become the world's largest open-cut copper mine at Panguna. The Bougainville-Copper Agreement was struck between a company then known as Consinc Rio Tinto of Australia and the Australian Government in 1967, and the mine began production in 1972, three years before PNG independence. Professor Kieran O'Farkaly from Griffith University went to Bougainville as a PhD student during the 1970s to look at the impact of the deal.
4: Many of the local people were opposed to the mine. At different points, the colonial administration had to bring in riot police to suppress opposition to the mine. So we're talking about a situation in which many people didn't want the mine. It was forced on them by the colonial administration through a law, the Bougainville Copper Agreement, in which they had no say.
2: Was the opposition at the beginning purely based on the fact that the people living there weren't consulted? Was that the reason for the opposition?
4: No, it wasn't the only reason. Another very big factor was loss of land associated with the project. So one of the major protests was at a place called Roravana, where women were heavily involved in the protest, and they were removed by the riot police. Some of them were jailed. And their objection was that the project was taking their land. A port and other facilities were uh, going to be built at Roravana. Similarly, at the mine site itself... People were losing their land. People were being relocated to other areas where there wasn't often garden land available. They were being moved on to other people's customary land. So being left out was a major part of it, but the other big part of it was the loss of land. Remember at this stage, whether or not people were solely involved in gardening, or whether they were also involved in copper or cocoa production. Their livelihoods relied entirely on their land. The other point to remember here is that this project turned out to be incredibly profitable for CRA and for its parent company, Rio Tinto. In fact, so profitable that CRA and Rio recovered their entire capital investment in just two and a half years. So they were making huge sums of money out of this project, but the compensation that was paid to people was absolutely minimal. And often it wasn't sufficient even to allow them to buy food to replace the garden food that they had lost.
2: As well as that, the mine caused tremendous environmental damage.
4: At this point in time, mining companies were allowed to simply dump the waste into the rivers, which is what happened. There was no tailings dam in the way there would be in Australia to confine these about 50 million tonnes of waste a year. Now, I mean, I know these numbers are so huge, it's hard to get your head around them, but it's a huge amount of waste. was simply dumped into the rivers. The rivers were biologically dead within a couple of years. They broke their banks and the tailings and the waste from the mine started to spread out onto other people's land. So by 75, it was very clear that people's worst fears were being realised in terms of the impact of this project. And at the same time, even with independence, the benefits were mainly flowing to Port Moresby. So I think it's, it's that set of circumstances that are critical, rather than necessarily an, an innate historical tendency by Bougainvilleans to secede.
5: I don't think anyone fully understood the impact of an open-cut mine. It became the world's largest open-cut copper mine, and it was probably a bit hard. I'm not even sure that BCL or Bougainville Copper at that stage
2: really understood how big that was going to be. Mary Louise O'Callaghan covered the Pacific region for Fairfax during the years of the Bougainville conflict. And when I visited it for the first time in 1988, I went up to Bougainville Copper to talk to
5: them about the issues that were coming up and the landowner discontent. Well, then, for many, many years, there was a five-year review of the Bougainville Copper Agreement, was supposed to be reviewed with the landowners or the Landowner Council and with the national government and the company. And the company had been trying, but the national government, like many things in Papua New Guinea administration, just it was in the a bit in the too hard basket. Bougainville was far away from Port Moresby, capital of Papua New Guinea, and it just had been left for too long. And what that meant was there was a whole fresh generation of young adults who, or not even so young, uh, Francis owner who led the rebellion in the end was in his thirties, he was a qualified surveyor, had worked at the mine, had probably been educated probably through BCL arrangements, I think. When I visited the mine in 1988, and the first sort of little bit of militancy had started to show up, roadblocks and various other things, and there'd been demands made of the company and of the PNG government. But the mine was still operating and no one was really interfering with that at that point. I um, went and saw the white management and they very proudly introduced me to their community liaison officer. I can remember his first name was Methodius. I can't remember his second name, unfortunately, after all these years. But he was delegated to show me around the mine. And I think the idea was to show me that they were hiring Bougainvillians in key roles and I made a joke and said, I'd much rather meet France's owner than have a look around the mine. And he said, oh, that's my cousin. Sure, I can take you to him. And that was the point where I realised BCL was really <laughs> probably in trouble, probably out of their depth in terms of what they were dealing with. So that even their community liaison officer, who presented as a very cooperative and helpful employee, basically his instinct was with his fellow landowners who were interested in getting a better deal.
3: In the establishing of the mine, when Bougainville population was less than 100,000, there was a workforce of 10,000 people on construction, mostly from elsewhere in Papua New Guinea. And so a massive influx of outsiders whom Bougainvillians regarded as, to some extent, not as good as them, people that were getting benefit from their land. Very, very limited uh, returns went to the landowners who remained resentful, although an elite of landowners who controlled to a large degree, the flow of funds, were relatively happy with it. The Bougainville government, set up in 1977 officially, got the royalties, about 5 million kina at the time, about 8 million US dollars. So it was significant revenue to the Bougainville government, and it used that money to try and build infrastructure and prosperity across Bougainville as a whole. But within Bougainville, there was a strong sense that the mine had been imposed mainly for the benefit of the independent state of Papua New Guinea, so that it could become gradually more fiscally self-reliant, and that was resented. During the 80s, new generation of landowners from the area where the mine was were becoming adults, and they didn't receive the compensation for the land taken So there was a whole series of resentments amongst local landowners, particularly the younger generation. At the same time, within the mine workforce, which reduced from 10,000 in construction to about 3,500 when the mine was operating, Bougainvillians only occupied about 30% of those positions. And by the mid-1980s, many young Bougainvillians from all over Bougainville were getting resentful about the lack of employment opportunities for their age mates elsewhere in Bougainville, about the lack of opportunities they had for advancement in the workforce. Young landowners and young mine workers got so angry because they couldn't get their concerns heard by the Papua New Guinea government or the company, they then decided to take action. They started destroying mine property, burning buildings and blowing up power pylons. Instead of talking, both the Bougainville government and the national government called for the police mobile squads from elsewhere in Papua New Guinea to come in. And those mobile squads used violence mainly in the highlands to stop tribal fighting or to stop demonstrations. And so they were using the same sort of violence against villagers in the area rather than trying to understand the problem. That then led to a massive unifying of groups around the young mine workers and the young landowners.
2: You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. The desire for independence is driving politics in places as far-flung as Catalonia, Scotland and New Caledonia. On this Rear Vision, we're hearing about the people of the autonomous region of Bougainville, an island province of Papua New Guinea, who've just begun voting in their own independence referendum. The violence that broke out in 1988 led to the closure of the Panguna Mine.
3: The mine was shut down in May 1989 as part of the conflict and has never reopened. Papua New Guinea troops left... Bougainville in March 1990 in the lead up to intended negotiations. The police commander at the time was so annoyed that he pulled the police out as well and suddenly owners group now called the Bougainville Revolutionary Army were in charge of Bougainville and they were not a structured organisation with a chain of command and to get support against the violence of the army and the police the young landowners and young mine workers had gone out and recruited their age mates, many of them criminals. And very rapidly, from mid-1990, the situation descended into highly localised conflicts, some of it over theft, some of it over payback of old scores, some of it about hitting people who had been regarded as supporting the Papua New Guinea government. Very rapidly then descended into an internal civil war in Bougainville with very strongly pro-secessionist BRA people opposed by what were often former BRA who'd been losing out in localised conflict, who then sought the return of the Papua New Guinea forces. So it was ultimately, from 1990 through to 1997, when the conflict ended, a sort of dual-headed civil war, one between secessionists in Papua New Guinea, another between secessionists in Bougainville and anti-secession Bougainvillians, and... Those two civil wars were masking a myriad of the local conflicts, very, very local, probably 70, 80 localised conflict that had nothing to do with ideology, nothing to do with secession, all to do with land and local history and identities and so on. So it was a very tragic outcome.
2: The Papua New Guinea government is to send troops to Bougainville Island to help police restore law and order. Incidents
4: overnight in which local Bougainvillians shot a policeman, blew up plantation workers' quarters, and burnt down Bougainville's main air terminal forced Prime Minister Namalu's hand. In recent days, there has been unacceptable acts of violence, which has resulted in loss of life, which fellow Papua New Guineans must regard as most shameful and deplorable.
5: So it escalated very quickly into very nasty, bloody guerrilla warfare, and the Papua New Guinea soldiers were really hamstrung by the fact that they weren't locals, they were Papua New Guineans, but they weren't from Bougainville, they weren't able to move through the bush in the same way that the Bougainvillean rebels were, or the Bougainville Revolutionary Army as it became. And so it got to the point then where the Papua New Guinea government decided the best thing to do was to put a blockade and they removed all Papua New Guinea services, teachers, nurses, all the security forces, and eventually, uh, effectively left the island for the Bougainvillians. I think the idea being that they, they thought that they could force the Bougainvillians themselves to come to their senses, but that didn't really work because by then you had young guys who were armed. And I remember going in to Boganville probably in about 1992, on the sun come up with Sean Dorney, the former ABC Port Moresby correspondent, and a couple of Papua New Guinea journos. We were asked to go in because the blockade had been on. Nothing was shifting politically and things were getting pretty dire on the ground there. There were no medicines People were dying from things like malaria, TB and in childbirth because there was just very limited medical care and problems with some food supplies and schools weren't running and essentially the blockade had shut everything down and there was a lot of violence between villains too occurring as a result of the absence of any security. Essentially there was a breakdown in the rule of law and it really drifted on like that in a very parlous state for a long time. Uh, Julius Chan came into office, the Papua New Guinea Prime Minister, in '95, and made it clear that he was very keen to solve the Bougainville crisis. He tried to have peace talks but having no real experience in peace processes, that was a very rushed job. He persuaded and got the support of the Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating to fund a little regional peacekeeping force that could protect the Bougainvillians to come in for the talks. But there'd been no work really done in advance to build any trust between the Papua New Guinea side and the Bougainville side. So the key Bougainville rebel leaders didn't show up. Those talks failed. So then in 97, end of 96, Julius Chan was approached by this um, UK-based South African mercenary group under the name of Sandline International, and they then began a process which eventually led to a mercenary's landing in Port Moresby and being in Papua New Guinea in March of um, 1997. I broke the story that they were on the ground. Chan initially denied that that was the case. Lawyer and former PNG ambassador to the US, Meg Taylor, has seen a copy of the government's $36 million contract with Sandline. Significantly, she says it includes a directive to recapture the massive Panguna copper mine in central Bougainville.
4: It does definitely say that Sandline personnel are to conduct offensive operations in Bougainville in conjunction with the PNG Defence Forces and the purpose of their operation is to render the BRA militarily ineffective and to repossess the Panguna mine. Once it became clear after the initial phase of conflict that the PNG Defence Forces were apparently unable to deal with the BRA, to suppress the BRA... Some elements in the Papua New Guinea government came up with the idea of bringing in Sandline, who are headed by South African mercenaries, and the idea was that they would use those people against the BRA. However, other elements in the PNG government and the PNG Defence Force in particular uh, were appalled at the idea that you would bring in mercenaries to settle a dispute among Papua New Guineans.
2: The Sandline affair dominated the news here in Australia in 1997. The Australian government threatened to withhold aid to PNG unless it cancelled the deal with the mercenaries. Public protest, rioting, and looting broke out in Port Moresby, and the PNG military became engaged in a standoff with the government. Although the Sandline contract was ultimately cancelled, the affair brought down the government of Sir Julius Chan.
5: The two sides arrived in Christchurch with a level of optimism that few thought could be translated into peace. A fortnight later, sworn enemies are singing the praises of a peace agreement. The agreement is for unity and reconciliation, a ceasefire declaration, a neutral peacekeeping force and demilitarization of Bougainville.
3: We must continue to work together and pray together to bring about a full and final end to the war on Bougainville.
4: The conflict ended after a protracted period of seven years of negotiations that involved both New Zealand and Australia in terms of playing a mediating role. The conflict was ended through a peace agreement that was signed in 2001 by Papua New Guinea and Bougainville, and that's a very complex and detailed agreement. But the critical parts of it are that Papua New Guinea and Bougainville agreed that Bougainville would remain for the moment as part of Papua New Guinea, but Bougainville would have a considerable degree of autonomy, much more autonomy, much more independence within Papua New Guinea than a normal province would. The final component of the peace agreement was that between 2015 and 2020, there would be a referendum in which Bougainvillians will vote, whether or not they want to remain part of Papua New Guinea or whether they want to become independent.
2: Voting began in that referendum on Saturday. What's happened in Bougainville since the signing of the peace agreement? Shane McLeod is now a research fellow in the Pacific Islands program at the Lowy Institute.
1: There's been a real focus or a real growth of Bougainvillian identity in the years since. Part of the goal of the peace agreement was to give time. It was something that the PNG side agreed to, and it gave 15 years for the new Bougainville government to establish itself. And over time, the powers that were held by the national, the PNG government, were to be handed over to Bougainville. Now, the design, I think, gave both sides some of what they wanted, but not all of what they wanted. It's the nature of the compromise. Certainly there seemed to be a push by many Bougainvillians for independence and it was to happen as a result of the peace agreement. But PNG really didn't want that to happen and wanted to have this, this time. I think the idea was that over that time PNG would be able to make the case strongly that there were benefits for Bougainville in staying as part of PNG. In reality, the politics of PNG meant that that case wasn't made particularly well. PNG didn't deliver the finances, the money that Bougainville needed to deliver services. There were political frustrations, a disconnect between really Prime Minister Peter O'Neill and the leadership on Bougainville. And the consequence of that is that we're now 15 years down the track. We're 15 years after the referendum process was triggered effectively by the establishment of that Bougainville government. And it's really only in this last period, coming up to this vote, that there seems to be engagement from Papua New Guinea in what's going to happen next.
2: Foreign investors are lining up for access to Bougainville's resources. Copper and gold reserves, possibly worth $58 are at stake at Panguna and BCL, the company that operated the mine before it closed down, still declares a claim, despite having its licence indefinitely suspended. Shane McLeod says that questions of land ownership and the future of Panguna make mining a central political issue.
1: What mining there is is alluvial and small scale. It would be traditional landowners, um, perhaps fossicking in rivers, and it's a very mineral-rich province. I mean, gold has always been found on Bougainville. It's the reason why the mine was there. It was a gold and copper mine. Mining continues to be the big issue for Bougainville politically. There are some on Bougainville who see it as the future of their economy. There are many who are fiercely opposed to it. And how politicians interact with mining has been a source of some conflict. A representative government might be the force for negotiating with mining companies coming in. But when you look back at the origins of the conflict, one of the real core issues was landowner engagement and landowners being recognised and deriving the, the most benefits from the mines. That question is really at the core of Bougainville's political future because If landowners don't feel like they're being recognised and talked to and negotiated with as part of the process, then any political engagement with particularly external mining companies is going to be fraught.
2: Is it clear who owns the minerals?
1: It's a really tough question. The whole of PNG has been overlaid with a Western legal tradition that says the government owns the minerals. But when you talk to Papua New Guineans and Bougainvillians, that concept completely conflicts with their understanding of their connection to land. And that issue continues to complicate this question of mining development. Because in the end, it's not a question of the government owns things below a certain depth on my land. People have their connection to their land and they don't see that the government trumps that.
2: Although the Bougainville referendum is non-binding on the PNG government, it's expected that the vote will be for independence.
1: What that means is, in the immediate aftermath of this vote, it won't be a straightforward, you know, a majority votes for independence and Bougainville becomes independence. This still is negotiated between Bougainville and the national government. Now, some people have said that's a bit of a failing, that that means that this situation will be complicated and may be drawn out. I've seen comments from one or two Boganvillian politicians who actually say this is good, this is the way to do it because it means that things don't just switch overnight. And the process of devolution that's been happening over the past 15 years is given a stronger underpinning and there's a reason for it to keep happening and for it to continue. This will be a complicated process. It could take months, it could take years. The thing that complicates it is just seven months after this vote happens, Bougainville chooses its new president as well. You then have a domestic political campaign between people who would need to articulate their view on what that vote means. I liken it a bit to Brexit. It's a process that's gone on for a long time, and right now there's been a change of leadership in the middle of that that could set its direction. Essentially, the people of Bougainville get two goes at this. They get to have a vote on independence, and then they get to choose the leader who will execute that decision for them.
2: Shane McLeod, a research fellow in the Pacific Islands program at the Lowy Institute. The other speakers were Dr Anthony Regan, a constitutional lawyer involved in the Bougainville peace process, Professor Kieran O'Farkley from Griffith University, Dr Alan Patience from the University of Melbourne, and Mary Louise O'Callaghan, a former Fairfax journalist whose book about Bougainville is called... Enemies Within, Papua New Guinea, Australia and the Sandline Crisis, the inside story. Stephen Tilley and Isabella Tropiano were the sound engineers on this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.